we present Monkey. An abridged translation of the great Chinese classic Journey to the West, written by Wu Chung-un, translated by Arthur Whaley, and narrated by Bob Jones. Chapter 28 They travelled westward for many months, and at last began to be aware that the country through which they were now passing was different from any that they had seen. Everywhere they came across gem-like flowers and magical grasses, with many ancient cypresses and hoary pines. In the villages through which they passed, every family seemed to devote itself to the entertainment of priests and other pious works. On every hill were hermits practicing austerities, in every wood pilgrims chanting holy writ. Finding hospitality each night and starting again at dawn, they journeyed for many days, till they came at last within sudden sight of a cluster of high eaves and towers. Monkey, that's a fine place, said Tripitaka, pointing to it with his whip. Considering, said Monkey, how often you have insisted upon prostrating yourself at the sight of false magicians' palaces and arch-impostors' lairs, it is strange that when you at last see before you Buddha's true citadel, you should not even dismount from your horse. At this, Tripitaka, in great excitement, sprang from his saddle, and walking beside the horse, was soon at the gates of the high building. A young Taoist came out to meet them. Aren't you the people who have come from the east to fetch scriptures? he asked. Tripitaka hastily tidied his clothes, and looking up saw that the boy was clad in gorgeous brocades and carried a bowl of jade dust in his hand. Monkey knew him at once. This, he said to Tripitaka, is the golden-crested great immortal of the Jade Truth Temple at the foot of the Holy Mountain. Tripitaka at once advanced, bowing. Well, here you are at last, said the immortal. The Bodhisattva misinformed me. Ten years ago, she was told by Buddha to go to China and find someone who would fetch scriptures from India. She told me she had found someone who would arrive here in two or three years. Year after year I waited, but never a sign. This meeting is indeed a surprise. I cannot thank you enough, great immortal, for your patience, said Tripitaka. Then they all went into the temple and were shown round by the immortal. Tea and refreshments were served, and perfumed hot water was brought for Tripitaka to wash in. Soon they all turned in for the night. Early next day, Tripitaka changed into his brocade cassock and jeweled cap, and staff in hand, presented himself to the immortal in the hall of the temple to take his leave. That's better, said the immortal. Yesterday you were looking a bit shabby, but now you look like a true child of Buddha. Tripitaka was just going when the immortal stopped him, saying, you must let me see you off. It's really not necessary, said Tripitaka. 
Monkey knows the way. He only knows the way by air, said the immortal. You have got to go on the ground. That's true enough, said Monkey. We will trouble you just to set us on the right way. My master is pining to get into the presence of the Buddha, and it would be a pity if there were any delay. Taking Tripitaka by the hand, he led him right through the temple and out at the back. For the road did not go from the front gate, but traversed the courtyards and led on to the hill behind. You see that highest point, wreathed in magic rainbow mists, said the immortal, pointing to the mountain. That is the vulture peak, the sacred precinct of the Buddha. Tripitaka at once began kowtowing. Master, said Monkey, you had better keep that for later on. If you are going to kowtow all the way to the top, there won't be much left of your head by the time we get there. It's still a long way off. You stand already on blessed ground, said the immortal. The holy mountain is before you. I shall now turn back. Monkey led them up the hill at a leisurely pace. They had not gone more than five or six leagues when they came to a great water about eight leagues wide. It was exceedingly swift and rough. No one was to be seen in any direction. I don't think this can be the right way, said Tripitaka. Do you think the immortal can possibly have been mistaken? This water is so wide and so rough that we cannot possibly get across. This is the way, all right, said Monkey. Look, just over there is a bridge. That's the right way to salvation. Presently, Tripitaka came to a notice board on which was written Cloud Reach Bridge. But it proved, when they came up to it, that the bridge consisted simply of slim tree trunks laid end on end, and was hardly wider than the palm of a man's hand. Monkey, protested Tripitaka in great alarm, it's not humanly possible to balance on such a bridge as that. We must find some other way to get across. This is the right way, said Monkey grinning. It may be the right way, said Pigsy, but it's so narrow and slippery that no one would ever dare set foot on it. And think how far there is to go and what it's like underneath. All wait where you are, and watch while I show you how, cried Monkey. Dear Monkey, he strode up to the bridge, leapt lightly onto it, and had soon slipped across. I'm over, he shouted, waving from the other side. Tripitaka showed no sign of following him, and Pigsy and Sandy bit their fingers, murmuring, Can't be done, can't be done. Monkey sprang back again and pulled at Pigsy, saying, Fool, follow me across. But Pigsy lay on the ground and would not budge. It's much too slippery, he said. Let me off. Why can't I have a wind to carry me? What would be the good of that, said Monkey? Unless you go by the bridge, you won't turn into a Buddha. Buddha or no Buddha, said Pigsy. I'm not going on that bridge. The quarrel was at its height 
when Sandy ran between them and at last succeeded in making peace. Suddenly Tripitaka saw someone punting a boat towards the shore and crying, Ferry! Ferry! Stop your quarrelling, disciples, said Tripitaka. A boat is coming. They all gazed with one accord at the spot to which he pointed. A boat was coming indeed, but when it was a little nearer, they saw to their consternation that it had no bottom. Monkey, with his sharp eyes, had already recognised the fairy man as the conductor of souls, also called Light of the Banner. But he did not tell the others, merely crying, Ahoy! Ferry! Ahoy! When the boat was along shore, the ferryman again cried, Ferry! Ferry! Your boat is broken and bottomless, said Tripitaka, much perturbed. How can you take people across? You may well think, said the ferryman, that in a bottomless boat such a river as this could never be crossed, but since the beginning of time I have carried countless souls to their salvation. Get on board, master, said Monkey. You will find that this boat, although it has no bottom, is remarkably steady, however rough the waters may be. Seeing Tripitaka still hesitate, Monkey took him by the scruff of the neck and pushed him on board. There was nothing for Tripitaka's feet to rest on, and he went straight into the water. The ferryman caught at him and dragged him up to the side of the boat. Sitting miserably there, he wrung out his clothes, shook out his shoes, and grumbled at Monkey for having got him into this scrape. But Monkey, taking no notice, put Pigsy and Sandy, horse and baggage, all on board, ensconcing them as best he could in the gunwale. The ferryman punted them dexterously out from the shore. Suddenly, they saw a body in the water, drifting rapidly downstream. Tripitaka stared at it in consternation. Monkey laughed. Don't be frightened, master, he said. That's you. And Pigsy said, It's you! It's you! Sandy clapped his hands. It's you! It's you! He cried. The ferryman, too, joined in the chorus. There you go! He cried. My best congratulations! He went on punting, and in a very short while, they were all safe and sound on the other side. Tripitaka stepped lightly ashore. He had discarded his earthly body. He was cleansed from the corruption of the senses, from the fleshly inheritance of those bygone years. His was now the transcendent wisdom that leads to the further shore, the mastery that knows no bounds. When they were at the top of the bank, they turned round and found to their astonishment that boat and ferryman had both vanished. Only then did Monkey tell them who the ferryman was. Tripitaka began thanking his disciples for all they had done for him. Every one of us, said Monkey, is equally indebted to the other. If the master had not received our vows and accepted us as his disciples, we should not have had the chance to do good works and win salvation. If we had not protected the master and mounted guard over him, he would never have got rid of his mortal body. 
Look, master, at this realm of flowers and happy creatures, of phoenixes, cranes, and deer. Is it not a better place indeed than the haunted deserts through which you and I have passed? Tripitaka still murmured his thanks, and with a strange feeling of lightness and exhilaration, they all set off up the holy mountain and were soon in sight of the Temple of the Thunderclap, with its mighty towers brushing the firmament, its giant foundations rooted in the seams of the Hill of Life. Near the top of the hill they came upon a party of Upasakas, filing through the green pine woods and under a clump of emerald cedars they saw bands of the blessed. Tripitaka hastened to bow down to them. Worshippers, male and female, monks and nuns, pressed together the palms of their hands, crying, Holy priest, it is not to us that your homage should be addressed. Wait till you have seen Sakyamuni, and afterwards come and greet us each according to his rank. He's always in too much of a hurry, laughed Monkey. Come along at once, and let us pay our respects to the people at the top. Twitching with excitement, Tripitaka followed Monkey to the gates of the temple. Here they were met by the Vajrapani of the Four Elements. So, your reverence has at last arrived, he exclaimed. Your disciple, Xian Tsang, has indeed arrived, said Tripitaka, bowing. I must trouble you to wait here a moment till your arrival has been announced, said the Vajrapani. He then gave instructions to the porter at the outer gate to tell the porter at the second gate that the Vajrapani wished to report that the priest from China had arrived. The porter at the second gate sent word to the porter at the third gate. At this gate were holy priests with direct access to the powers above. They hurried to the great hall and informed the Tathagata, the most honored one, even Sakyamuni Buddha himself, that the priest from the court of China had arrived at the mountain to fetch scriptures. Father Buddha was delighted. He ordered the Bodhisattva Vajrapanis, Arhats, protectors, planets, and temple guardians to form up in two lines. Then he gave orders that the priest of Tang was to be shown in. Again, the word was passed along from gate to gate. The priest of Tang is to be shown in. Tripitaka, Monkey, Pigsy, and Sandy, carefully following the rules of etiquette prescribed to them, all went forward, horse and baggage following. When they reached the great hall, they first prostrated themselves before the Tathagata, and then bowed to right and left. This they repeated three times, and then knelt before the Buddha and presented their passports. He looked through them one by one and handed them back to Tripitaka, who bent his head in acknowledgement, saying, This disciple, Xian Tsang, has come by order of the Emperor of the Great Land of Tang all the way to this holy mountain to fetch the true scriptures which are to be the salvation of all mankind. May the Lord Buddha accord this favor and grant me a quick return to my native land. Hereupon the Tathagata opened the mouth of compassion 
and gave vent to the mercy of his heart. In all the vast and populous bounds of your eastern land, greed, slaughter, lust, and lying have long prevailed. There is no respect for Buddha's teaching, no striving towards good works. So full and abundant is the measure of the people's sins that they go down forever into the darkness of hell, where some are pounded in mortars, some take on animal form, furry and horned, in which guise they are done by as they did on earth, their flesh becoming men's food, Confucius stood by their side, teaching them all the virtues. King after king in vain corrected them with fresh penalties and pains. No law could curb their reckless debauches, no ray of wisdom penetrate their blindness. But I have three baskets of scripture that can save mankind from its torments and afflictions. One contains the law, which tells of heaven. One contains the discourses, which speak of earth. One contains the scriptures, which save the dead. They are divided into 35 sections and are written upon 15,144 scrolls. They are the path to perfection, the gate that leads to true good. In them may be learned all the motions of the stars and divisions of earth, all that appertains to man, bird, beast, flower, tree, and implement of use. In short, all that concerns mankind is found therein. In consideration of the fact that you have come so far, I would give you them all to take back. But the people of China are foolish and boisterous. They would mock at my mysteries and would not understand the hidden meaning of our order. Ananda Kasyapa, he cried, take these four to the room under the tower, and when they have refreshed themselves, open the doors of the treasury and select from each of the 35 sections a few scrolls for these priests to take back to the east, to be a boon there forever. In the lower room they saw countless rarities and treasures, and were still gazing upon them in wonder when spirits ministrant began to spread the feast. The foods were all fairy fruits and dainties unknown in the common world. Master and disciples bowed acknowledgement of Buddha's favor and set to with a good will. This time it was Pigsy who was in luck and Sandy who scored, for Buddha had provided for their fare such viands as confer long life and health, and magically transform the substance of common flesh and bone. When Ananda and Kasyapa had seen to it that the four had all they wanted, they went into the treasury. The moment the door was opened, Beams of magic light shot forth, filling the whole air far around. On chests and jeweled boxes were stuck red labels, on which were written the names of the holy books. The two disciples of Buddha led Tripitaka up to the place where the scriptures lay, 
and inviting him to study their title said, Having come here from China, you have no doubt brought a few little gifts for us. If you will kindly hand them over, you shall have your scriptures at once. During all my long journey, said Tripitaka, I have never once found it necessary to lay anything of the kind. Splendid, said the disciples, so we're to spend our days handing over scriptures gratis, not a very bright outlook for our heirs. Thinking by their sarcastic tone that they had no intention of parting with the scriptures, Monkey could not refrain from shouting angrily, Come along, master, we'll tell Buddha about this and make him come and give us the scriptures himself. Don't shout, said Ananda. There's nothing in the situation that demands all this bullying and blustering. Come here and fetch your scriptures. Pigsy and Sandy, mastering their rage and managing to restrain Monkey, came across to the books. Scroll by scroll was packed away into the bundle, which was hoisted onto the horse's back. Then the two luggage packs were tied up and given to Pigsy and Sandy to carry. They first went and kowtowed their thanks to Buddha, and then made for the gates. To every lesser Buddha that they met, they bowed twice, to every Bodhisattva once. Then, leaving the great outer gates, they paid their respects to the groups of monks and nuns, and saying farewell, went back down the mountain as fast as they could. In an upper room that looked on to the treasury, there happened to be sitting Dipankara, the Buddha of the past. He overheard the whole conversation about the handing over of the scriptures and had a notion that if they were given no gratuity, Ananda and Kasyapa would revenge themselves by substituting scriptures with nothing in them. The poor fools, he said to himself certainly have no idea of the trick that is being played on them, and will discover too late that their whole journey has been wasted. Is there anyone here that could take a message for me? he asked. The white heroic bodhisattva stepped forward. I want you to put forth all your magic powers, said Dipankara. Catch up Tripitaka, get those scriptures away from him, and bring him back to get proper ones. The white heroic bodhisattva sat astride a whirlwind and made off as fast as his magic powers would carry him. The wind he rode on had a strange perfume, which Tripitaka, when he first perceived it, thought merely to be one of the portents of paradise. But a moment later, a great rushing sound was heard, and a hand suddenly stretched out from space, seized the scriptures, and bore them away. Tripitaka beat his breast and groaned, Pigsy rolled off in pursuit, while Sandy clutched at the empty pannier. Monkey leapt into the air, but the white heroic bodhisattva, seeing him draw near, feared that he might strike out blindly with his cudgel before any explanation could be given. So he tore open the scripture parcel and threw it to the ground. Monkey, when he saw the parcel fall and its contents scattered by the scented gale, 
lowered his cloud and went to see in what condition the scrolls were. He was soon joined by Pigsy, who had given up the pursuit, and they both began collecting the scrolls and bringing them to where Tripitaka was waiting. He was weeping bitterly. Little did I think, he sobbed, that even in paradise we should be thus molested by savage demons. Sandy now opened one of the scrolls that he had brought. It was snowy white. There was not a trace of so much as half a letter upon it. Master, he said, handing it to Tripitaka, this scroll has got no writing in it. Monkey then opened a scroll. It too was blank. Pigsy did the same, only to make the same discovery. We had better look at them all, said Tripitaka. They did so, and found that all were blank. I must say it's hard luck on the people of China, sobbed Tripitaka. What is the use of taking to them these blank books? How shall I dare face the Emperor of Tang? He will say I am playing a joke on him and have me executed on the spot. Monkey had by now guessed what had happened. Master, he said, I know what's at the bottom of this. It's all because we refuse to give Ananda and Kasyapa their commission. This is how they have revenged themselves on us. The only thing to do is to go straight to Buddha and charge them with fraudulent withholding of delivery. They all agreed and were soon back at the temple gates. They've come back to change their scriptures, said the bands of the blessed laughing. This time they were allowed to go straight in. Listen to this, shouted Monkey. After all the trouble we had getting here from China, and after you specially ordered that we were to be given the scriptures, Ananda and Kasyapa made a fraudulent delivery of goods. They gave us blank copies to take away. I ask you, what is the good of that to us? You needn't shout, said Buddha smiling. I quite expected that those two would ask for their commission. As a matter of fact, scriptures ought not to be given on too easy terms or received gratis. On one occasion, some of my monks went down the mountain to Sravasti with some scriptures and let Chow, the man of substance, read them out loud. The result was that all the live members of his household were protected from all calamity and the dead were saved from perdition. For this, they only charged gold to the weight of three pecks and three pints of rice. I told them they had sold far too cheap. No wonder they gave you blank copies when they saw you did not intend to make any payment at all. As a matter of fact, it is such blank scrolls as these that are the true scriptures. But I quite see that the people of China are too foolish and ignorant to believe this, so there is nothing for it but to give them copies with some writing on. Then he called for Ananda and Kasyapa and told them to choose a few scrolls with writing out of each of the 35 divisions of the scriptures, hand them over to the pilgrims and then inform him of the exact titles and numbers. 
The two disciples accordingly took the pilgrims once more to the treasury, where they again asked Tripitaka for a little present. He could think of nothing to give them except his golden begging bowl. He told Sandy to find it, and holding it up before him in both hands, he said to the two disciples, I am a poor man, and have been travelling for a long time. I fear I have nothing with me that is suitable as a present, but perhaps you would accept this bowl, which the Emperor of China gave me with his own hand, that I might use it to beg with on the road. If you will put up with so small a trifle, I am sure that when I return to China and report upon my mission, you may count upon being suitably rewarded. I hope on these terms you will this time give me scriptures with writing on them, or I fear His Majesty will be disappointed and think that all my efforts have been wasted. Ananda took the bowl with a faint smile. But all the divinities in attendance, down to the last kitchen boy God, clapped one another on the back and roared with laughter, saying, well, of all the shameless, they've made the scripture-seekers pay them a commission. The two disciples looked somewhat embarrassed, but Ananda continued to clutch tightly at the bowl. Kasyapa, meanwhile, began looking out the scriptures and handing them over to Tripitaka. Disciples, said he, keep a sharp lookout to see that the same thing does not happen again. 5,048 scrolls were duly handed over. All of them had writing. Then they were properly arranged and loaded on the horse's back, and a few that were over were made into a packet and given to Pigsy to carry. The other luggage was carried by Sandy, while Monkey led the horse. Tripitaka carried his priest's staff and wore his jeweled cap and brocaded cassock. In this guise, they all once more presented themselves before Buddha. Seated on his lotus throne, the Blessed One ordered the two great arhats to beat on their cloud gongs and summon to the throne the three thousand Buddhas, the eight Vajrapanis, the four Bodhisattvas, the five hundred arhats, the eight hundred monks, and all the congregation of the faithful. Those that were entitled to be seated were ordered to sit upon their jeweled thrones, and those that were to stand were ranged in two files on either hand. Soon heavenly music was heard from afar. A magic radiance filled the air. When the whole company was duly assembled, Buddha asked his two disciples for an exact account of the scriptures that they had handed over. Ananda and Kasyapa then read over the list, beginning with the Book of Great Decease, and ending with the Kosa Sastra. These books, said Ananda, written on 5,048 scrolls, have all been given to the priests of China to keep forever in their land. They are all now securely packed on their horses' back or in parcels to be carried by hand, and the pilgrims are here to thank you. Tripitaka and the disciples tethered the horse, put down the burdens, and bowed with their palms of their hands pressed together. The efficacy of these scriptures is boundless, said Buddha. They are not only the mirror of our faith, 
but also the source and origin of all three religions. When you return to the world and show them to the common mortals, they must not be lightly handled. No scroll must be opened save by one who has fasted and bathed. Treasure them, value them, for in them is secreted the mystic law of immortality. In them is revealed the wondrous receipt for ten thousand transformations. Tripitaka kowtowed his thanks, doing leal homage and prostrating himself three times as he had done before. When they reached the outer gates, they paid their respects to the bands of the faithful and went on their way. After dismissing the pilgrims, Buddha broke up the assembly. Presently, the Bodhisattva Quenyin appeared before the throne, saying, Long ago, I was instructed by you to find someone in China who would come here to fetch scriptures. He has now achieved his task, which has taken him five thousand and forty days. The number of the scrolls delivered to him is five thousand and forty-eight. I suggest that it would be appropriate if he were given eight days in which to complete his mission so that the two figures may concord. A very good idea, said Buddha. You may have that put into effect. He then sent for the eight Vajrapanis and said to them, You are to exert your magic powers and carry back Tripitaka to the east. When he has deposited the scriptures, you are to bring him back here. All this must be done in eight days, that the number of days taken by the journey may concord with the number of scrolls allotted to him. The Vajrapanis at once went after Tripitaka, caught him up and said to him, Scripture taker, follow us. A sudden lightness and agility possessed the pilgrims, and they were borne aloft upon a magic cloud. And if you do not know how they returned to the east and handed over the scriptures, you must listen to what is told in the next chapter. been listening to Monkey, an abridged translation of the great Chinese classic Journey to the West, written by Wu Chung-un, translated by Arthur Whaley, and narrated by Bob Jones.